Ah, the feeding of the 5,000. You know, these stories are great for kids and all, but these miracles, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But now as an adult, I put away childish things like the miracle stories and now I see more of what reality is and how the world really works. The miracles in the Bible, they're myths from antiquity, right? Even if they happen then, they, they certainly don't happen that way now, or at least not like that. In recent months, we've gotten deep into the world of Star Wars in my household. Watching these movies all over again has reminded me how, as a kid, I used to try to be like Luke Skywalker and move physical objects by the sheer force of my mind. You remember Luke in The Empire Strikes Back at the beginning when he's on the, the planet of Hoth and that like abominable snowman thing like attaches him upside down and his lightsaber stuck in the, sand, in the snow and he, he somehow gravitationally pulls by the, the power of the force the lightsaber into his hand and then he slashes himself down and then he kills the, the snowman thing. I don't really think that I'm able to do those kinds of things anymore. I don't really try to move physical objects with the sheer force of my mind anymore. I put away childish things, mostly. Well, what kind of mind-bending thing is Jesus up to today? Feeding 5,000 people at the end of a sermon series, to be true, with time to spare before sunset. In fact, it wasn't only 5,000, that was just the men. It was more probably like closer to 10, 12, or maybe even 15,000 because when you add all the men and the women and the children, it's quite a crowd. Jesus multiplied a few boxes of homegrown leftovers to feed a staggering amount of people. Surely Matthew's memory is warped about this. Surely he can't be recalling things in the correct order. Somehow, this is a, a dream that he's manufactured and, and spilled out onto the page. You have to wonder that when he passed his gospel along to the editors, his editors said, where are your corroborating sources? This could not have happened. And Matthew would have said, well, it's in Mark and Luke and John too, so I wasn't the only one. Still, 15,000 people. Five loaves, two fish. Someone once asked the theologian Karl Barth whether we should demythologize Jesus' miracles, which means to make them make sense to people like us, people with modern ears. Barth responded, no. The miracles shall be regarded as comforting protest against our myths. What did he mean? Well, Bart is teaching us that the stories of our lives, the stories or the myths, are what give shape to our lives. So it's very important that the myths that do shape our lives are true 
in ways that lead to life. It matters whether they're false and lead to death. One of the most oppressive myths that shapes our lives today and which the church has been established to confront and to refute is the myth of scarcity. The myth of scarcity teaches that there isn't enough to go around. And because there are limited resources, we must gather as much while it lasts, even if it means others won't have enough. The myth of scarcity is one of the most dominant myths of empires and one of the most dominant myths of the American empire. The myth of scarcity is the prevailing myth this week in the halls of our nation's capital as representatives debate whether or not to renew financial aid for struggling Americans. We can't afford it. There's already too much debt. What about the deficit? These are precisely the questions that arise from imaginations that are more captivated by the myth of scarcity than the miracle Jesus performs today by the sea. So I want to tell you one of the reasons we need to listen to Jesus today. One of the most important reasons that America needs faithful churches today. One of the most brilliant announcements of good news that you'll ever hear when Jesus says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. Which is to say, why, there's a gracious plenty here if you share it. How many times do you think, just throughout the Gospels, just throughout their relationship with Jesus, how many times do you think the disciples just stare in disbelief at something Jesus says, just incredulous. You cannot feed this many people with this much food. We're dealing with facts on the ground here. Jesus is simple math. We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish, a nice snack maybe for one or two families of four. The emphasis is on, we may have noticed, there is nothing here. We have nothing. Nothing in all caps. 10 to 15,000 people. There's not enough. There's not enough food. There's not enough time. There's not even enough people to pass it around if we had enough food because the sun is setting soon. And all of these people, where will they have to go? What will they have to eat? You give them something to eat. It happens sometimes in small ways. You know, survivors of the Great Depression have spent the rest of their lives proudly telling about how poor they were. And they didn't even know it. They would say, it's a constant refrain in some of my own relatives. We didn't know how poor we were because everyone else around us was poor. And yet, how many centenarians are there today? who grew up in those times. It happens in small ways. Beloved, dearly departed life deacon, Catherine Beaver, tells the story in an archived interview of how she filled nearly every kind of job there was to fill in this place as a church member. 
And she was even thrust into the position once as director of the kitchen. And she tells a delightful story about this position that she did not seek. One night, she said she got in over her head with a, a big dinner for a bunch of prison chaplains from the, from the region. She served, she said, steak and baked potatoes, thinking that they'd all just take, you know, one steak apiece. She said she stood there at the doorway of the kitchen and started watching what she called these big burly men reaching into the pile of steaks and taking not one, but two and three steaks. And not one baked potato, but like two baked potatoes. And she was sitting there, she thought it was driving me crazy, she said. She said, it worried the stew out of me. And if you can hear Catherine's voice saying these things, it's so funny. It worried the stew out of me. I just stood there thinking, we'll never have enough. But we did. Poor Catherine, she sweated her way through the night. But it worked somehow. I don't know if it worked. They had enough for all those big burly men. It happens in those small ways. You look back on it and you think, I knew there wasn't going to be enough. And then there was. It also happens in big ways. August 28th, 1963, the March on Washington. A quarter of a million Americans flood into Washington, D.C. to call for civil and economic rights for African Americans. King's silhouette in the front of the Lincoln Memorial and the aerial views of the National Mall packed with people. The words, I have a dream, so deeply etched in the collective memory of our nation. The sheer force of eloquence and power of that day is so lasting and remains so present in our minds. Such an inspiring model for our marches even today that you would think that it was all meant to be. That this moment would have organized itself organically, even if no one lifted a finger. History itself would have invented this moment for us if we hadn't thought to. That's how big it was. But we forget that the Great March on Washington was a figment of imagination in just June of that year. Just two months before. A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin organized this massive crowd in a matter of about eight weeks. Can you imagine? I mean, our ministers are going to start preparing for Advent in a couple of weeks. Two months. From a dinky little office in D.C. with a big pen and a yellow legal pad, Bayard Rustin called up a small crew of volunteers, and he said something like, Y'all give them something to eat. No cell phones, no internet, no two-day shipping, not even a push-button phone. It's one of those rotary phones, if you, if you remember those. Maybe, maybe you're not old enough, but back in my day, <laughs> we had these rotary phones, and it, you, you dreaded your friend's phone numbers that had a nine in them because it just took forever to dial somebody. It'd take like a minute and a half to call a 1-800 number. Bayard Rustin 
in spite of this, in spite of his dinky little office and the main headquarters in Harlem receiving bomb threats every day, he led the team. They called on churches, primarily churches and community groups and civic clubs and individuals. And they raised a dollar here and a thousand dollars there, held benefit concerts, sold souvenirs, sent flyers, blanketed the media. They persuaded people even not to drive because they thought if there is a big crowd, won't have enough parking spaces, and then there wouldn't be a big crowd, so they organized buses and trains, and they had captains and, and food. One New York church bagged 80,000 lunches. Coca-Cola donated large coolers, and Johnny on the spot donated porta potties Doctors and nurses volunteered their surface. That, that's how it happened. You give them something to eat. There's no way. A quarter million people. But not only that, but in that most famous moment when King was giving his speech, someone else provided for him the most notable part that we remember. You see, when King wrote his speech, he, he didn't bring it to that pulpit with a title on it that says, I have a dream. In fact, the guiding metaphor was, uh, was a bad check, a check marked, marked insufficient funds. That was, the, that was really the, the landing of his speech or his sermon. But it was in that moment where he had basically reached the end of what he'd prepared that Mahalia Jackson, some distance in the background, Mahalia Jackson, one of the greatest gospel singers of all time, who had been traveling with King and listening to this set piece he would use about dreaming and having this dream for America. And she yelled out to him in this pregnant pause, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And you can see King set his notes aside and clutch the pulpit and begin to launch into the part of the speech that has gone down as one of the greatest speeches in the history of humankind. And about 50 feet away, his advisor spoke to someone standing beside him, a Clarence Jones, leaned over to the person standing beside him and said, these people don't know it, but they're about to go to church. Take the, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he blessed the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and the disciples gave it to the crowds. Now you, you look around here and it's easy to be convinced by the myth of scarcity. Not enough. Not going to be enough. But Jesus gives us an alternative myth. A myth of abundance. A myth that is true. When you trace it all the way back to this moment by the sea, he breaks the loaves and he offers the fish 
and they all multiply. And I just have to wonder, my friends, my sisters and brothers near and far, if this is not our calling as a congregation in this moment in time to look out at the crowds of Asheville and beyond and to be convinced that this is not a land of scarcity and this is not a time where we may say we have nothing. It is rather a time where we may say, convinced with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit is poured out on us at all times, that we may look upon the landscape around us and say, we have all that we need to share. We have all the abundance of God's promise to offer. So which myth is it going to be for us? Jesus looks at each one of us and all of us and says, you give them something to eat. And you know what the best news of all is? He would have never invited us to do this if Jesus wasn't convinced that we already had everything we need to share.